Vera Podcast. Research matters. In conversations with. In this series, we hear from educational leaders, experts, and enthusiasts about their special interest areas and their career experiences. Hello, I'm Professor Dominic Wise, Vera President, and today I'm delighted to be talking to Professor Ushukaswamy one of Vera's two John Nisbet Fellows for 2020. Usha is a Professor of Cognitive Developmental Neuroscience and the Director of the Centre for Neuroscience and Education at the University of Cambridge. A PhD was in Developmental Psychology from the University of Oxford. She became a lecturer in Psychology at the University of Cambridge and then on to Professor of Cognitive Developmental Psychology at University College London. Usha's work includes major focuses on reading development and developmental dyslexia. Vera awarded Usha the John Nisbet Fellowship for her outstanding contribution to research in education over her career. Usha, a very warm welcome. Thank you. And thank you again to Vera for honouring me with this award. I'm really very, very excited to receive it. So I think without further ado, we'll launch into some of our topics for discussion. So perhaps if we begin with the main aspects of your career, uh, including the focus of your research. Well, I was always interested in children and child development, and uh, I was also always interested in reading and literature and how the brain learns to read. I studied child psychology in Oxford, and we were taught lots of new research about the importance of children's awareness of phonology, uh, that's the sound structure of words, for learning to read. And when I was finishing my degree, they said, you know, do you want to do a PhD? But I really wanted to go and work directly with children. And so I went to do teacher training. And then while I was in London doing my teaching practice in Cricklewood, I could see that these five and six year olds were making all these errors when they were struggling to read. And they were predicted by the psychological theories I'd been learning about. And yet on our primary training, we weren't being introduced to any of these theories. And so that made me feel that there is still an important role for research into how children begin learning to read. And so then I did go back to Oxford to study for that PhD. So I studied in Oxford with a focus on rhyme analogy for reading. And then I was also interested in learning by analogy because I think it's an absolutely core feature of human cognition. And so I went to America for a year and studied reasoning by analogy and I could see a bigger picture emerging, you know, about the importance of structures, whether they're in the language system or in the cognitive systems that we learn about, like how causal factors connect environmental factors. And I got really interested in this. So in my first job, which was back in Cambridge, I studied the role of analogy in reading in more than one language. I thought it could be interesting to look at the role of rhyme in different languages and that was all going pretty well. But then when I was offered the chair in London, it was linked to Great Ormond Street. I was at the Institute of Child Health and they were saying, well, can't you work on atypical development? And so I began to look more into developmental dyslexia and also actually into how deaf children learn to read. And that got me more interested in the brain. And so I began developing a theory, basically, about what might be going wrong in the dyslexic brain which was related to my rhyme analogy work and these ideas about structures in the language structures, focusing on rhyme and then also linguistic rhythm patterns, because actually all human languages use rhythm as a way of transferring meaning to the brain of the listener. I got to a point where I realised really I needed my own brain imaging kit if this work was going to go anywhere. 
and by complete chance actually that Christmas I got a letter from Cambridge which was asking whether I'd like to apply for a chair in the education faculty and propose a five-year research plan and then I realised I could develop my own uh, centre for neuroscience and education which was the plan I submitted and I ended up back in Cambridge and actually having my own brain imaging kit turns out to have been absolutely critical for my work because we've been able to identify why these linguistic rhythm patterns are so important for learning to read and what is going wrong in the dyslexic brain, which is all based in terms of how the brain analyzes the sound signal that is speech. So we all know that the brain works with rhythms. There are brain waves, but there are also rhythms in speech, which we can think of as sound waves. And as soon as you're a baby learning language, your brain is trying to coordinate or synchronize your brain waves with those sound waves in the speech signal uh, you can almost think of it as the brain waves surfing the sound waves and what we're showing in our dyslexia research is that dyslexic brain never quite crests that wave the dyslexic brain's always coming in either a bit early or a bit late they're out of time essentially in terms of synchronizing the brain waves with the speech waves so this is something totally automatic the child can't control it or is of course not aware of it but it means that the way in which language is encoded in the dyslexic brain is different and that's not a problem when it comes to speaking and listening because as we know children with dyslexia often have fantastic vocabularies and they're very good communicators but what it does seem to mean is that when you have to learn a system for phonics then you're at a disadvantage because your brain isn't representing the language that you speak in the same way as all the other children in your class. And so phonics isn't that easy for you to learn. So many things in what you've just said are fascinating. Vera has been interested in the place, obviously, of education as an academic discipline and its relationship with other disciplines. And your experience kind of played that out to some degree. And of course, teacher training, you know, being actually part of what you did and then looking at real life problems, what Vera calls now close to practice problems. So fascinating areas there. Let's move on to related but different topics. So how would you say psychology and neuroscience have changed during your career? And what do you see as the main role in research on education? Well, I think if we take psychology first, then I think when I was starting out 30 years ago, understanding child psychology was seen as fairly important for trainee teachers. But then I think somehow during my career that changed so that psychology was less important in these educational training programmes. So much so that by 2008, when I was advising the UK government on the Foresight Report, which was an idea of looking at the research base so that we could optimise everybody's mental capital and well-being in our country... I was doing the children's development aspects. So I focused on the core role of child-centred learning because, you know, every science base that you address shows how important it is to use child-centred play-based learning if you want to optimise children's cognitive potential and also their emotional well-being. And when I went to the Department for Education in those days to present the report, the person I was presenting to, who was quite senior, told me that 20 years ago, someone had sat in the same chair as me and had told them that psychology had no relevance for education. Oh, dear. So, yeah, you can see that the pendulum sort of swinging back now, though, I think, because teachers are encountering more and more social emotional problems in children in the classroom, which is leading to a renewed interest in child psychology. The other thing I would say is that these emotional problems can often arise from an undiagnosed learning difficulty. And so I do think it's important that teachers are then taught something about the brain. So the value of neuroscience to education, I would see 
as having a fundamental role in showing these underlying mechanisms that lead to optimizing learning. So a lot of my research has shown things that in a way teachers already knew. So for example, the importance of nursery rhymes, the importance of music and singing, uh, which you mentioned. But by doing the neuroscience, we can actually look at what is the causal reason for these connections, showing why, for example, because of these rhythm patterns that the brain needs to internalize, which actually leads to some sort of statistical computations that the brain is doing, so it knows what to predict about what's coming next. All of those kinds of mechanisms are boosted by having a language-rich environment with lots of nursery rhymes and singing and music. And so we have causal data showing why that's important through neuroscience, why nursery rhymes matter for learning to read, even though they might seem rather different from, say, synthetic phonics, which is seen as so important for learning to read. So I think the value of neuroscience to education probably is becoming more recognised. And the more we'll understand, I think the more we'll find that these common learning difficulties like dyslexia or also oral language disorders do seem to have their origins in sensory processing, in the way that the child's brain hears language, sees language, also motor links to language, like motor prediction of the speech that's coming next. So if any of those things are going wrong, then it will affect how the language system develops and gets represented in the brain. So I think the job of educational neuroscience is to uncover these hidden mechanisms that guide child development. And then we can endorse those aspects of primary or nursery teaching that we already know are important. But now we can say this is why you can't omit oral activities if you're trying to teach reading, because children need this good foundation of a strong language system. I think, again, my theme that seems to occur to me as a result of hearing you talk is is around these different disciplinary connections. And we are increasingly in an interdisciplinary world or a world that needs to be thought about in terms of interdisciplinary connections. But if I take one example from what you've just said, I mean, child-centred learning, of course, has a, a rich history of debate. It also is a term that it sometimes polarises opinion. Um, but to hear someone like you with such a robust science base, unequivocally saying, you know, this is what the evidence shows us. I think it's so important that those scientific observations feed properly and appropriately into, yes, practice, as you've so memorably demonstrated, but also policy. And we're, we're inching our way towards policy, which I know uh, is not the easiest of areas for you, but let's give it a try. I was really fortunate when I was at Cambridge um, to have your support and uh, we, we worked on a, a paper published in the British Educational Research Journal. But I wondered, you know, many years on and, and as a result of your direct engagement at times with government departments, I wondered what your reflections are on the teaching of reading and the links with government policy. Well, I think we all hope to influence policy with our research. Um, but I would say the older I get, the more I realise it's actually the most difficult part of anything we do. You think if you do good research and you can show why it's important, the government will pick it up. But yeah. even if you have the ear of government, as I had with the Foresight report, that doesn't necessarily happen. And in fact, that report was particularly unfortunate because the government changed shortly after we published the report and then it was just put on the shelf. As an anecdote, I can tell you that before COVID came along, Patrick Valance had me up to Westminster to discuss these issues about learning difficulties that I'd written about 10 years ago because yeah. he thought they might be a problem. And, you know, 
his civil servants weren't even aware of that report that their own department had basically funded 10 years previously. So it is very difficult. I think if you want to talk about phonics in particular, I have another really relevant recent anecdote, which relates to my rhyme analogy uh, work. So I think my main expertise really is on phonics rather than, you know, literacy as a social undertaking, because I totally endorse everything that the education uh, researchers in that way have shown that any system of phonics tuition has to be delivered within an authentic and social set of reading activities. But I think if we take that part as read, then looking just at policy on phonics, I do think the government approach is too narrow. Because you and I showed in our paper in 2008 that the research base doesn't support one particular method of teaching phonics over another. It just needs to be systematic. So from my perspective, it's a shame that my research on reading by rhyme analogy isn't reflected in policy. And even very recently, I was in an EU project on dyslexia. And so we developed an app for helping these children with reading difficulties to learn phonics with repeated practice. It's a very nice software adaptive game so you get lots of practice at the bits you can't do it's called grapher game rhyme in english there are actually over 20 different language versions and this was funded by the education endowment foundation in an rct and the app grapher game rhyme is actually as good as business as usual for children who failed the phonics check at the end of year one so in other words it has the same outcomes for these children as individualized instruction from a teacher or a teaching assistant It's also much cheaper than a teaching assistant, but because it doesn't use synthetic phonics, but uses this rhyme analogy approach, I don't really feel hopeful that it's going to be recommended here, despite this great result with the EEF. I think the important thing for me in what you said there, and I think what we did at the time, was this idea of systematic. And I, I noticed a kind of change in language where, as I recall, ministers were saying only synthetic phonics, gradually the wording in documents changed to systematic synthetic phonics. And it appeared to me that was a kind of sort of way of uh, trying to manipulate, if you like, some of the messages. But I agree with you, it is terrifically difficult to get appropriate influence. But then I guess lots of people are trying to get influence. And um, I've spoken previously about the differences in different countries, even different countries in the UK, how the engagement with ministers you know, academics, practitioners seem so, from my perspective, so much more straightforward. Now, they're smaller countries, but nevertheless, I I think there's things can be learned in England about that genuine sharing uh, and professional debate. Tell me then a really important influence on your life and career. And, And if you had to single out just one text, I'm afraid, what might that text be? Well, I think definitely the most important influence for my career and the way my life has gone was my tutor when I went to Oxford, which was Professor Peter Bryant. He was an amazing person. I actually didn't apply to Oxford initially. I was at a comprehensive school and we weren't encouraged to think of Oxbridge. They couldn't train us for the seventh term entrance exam that used to be in place in those days. But then I got three A's at A-level. And so I thought, well, If I go to Oxford, I'll be taught by the best psychologists in the country. So why don't I try and write to some colleges and see if with my three A's, anybody would interview me? And actually, no college was interested at all. The only college that interviewed me was St. John's, which is where Peter Bryant was. And he offered me a place. And then it was him who was doing this inspirational work on phonological awareness in reading that I 
got so fired up about when I went off to my teacher training. And then he also encouraged me to stay for a PhD. So after my teacher training, he still had funding available, which was very lucky for me. So I did go back and do the PhD. And really, the most inspirational thing about him was his attitude, which was, you know, if something is interesting and it can help children, then you should work on it. And I kept finding my research interesting. So I did keep working on it. And in the end, I never did go back to teaching. I think singling out a book is much more difficult or a text. I do read a lot. I love reading novels. That was why I thought of studying English at university. Any of the great novels about childhood and about the importance of family life would be a good choice. So, for example, one I read more recently, Nabokov's Speak Memory is a most beautiful book. It's like reading a long lyrical poem. Mm -hmm. I would really recommend that book. I think books that show us how children need a family, they need grown-ups who take time to do things with them they don't have to be, be your blood relatives but people who are with you that you're with them talking to them being having them being interested in you I really think having extended conversations with young children seems to be on the decline but it's so crucial and important for development I've been thinking about that very issue in my centre the, the Helen Hamlin Centre for Pedagogy and just a small one of the small things we've done is a get children thinking campaign which is really a a Twitter campaign, to be honest, and it, it seems to have tapped into a nerve somewhere. So I, the empirical evidence on, of course, whether extended conversations are happening more or less is really challenging work to do. But I think this aspect of children's lives is really important. And particularly, I have a thing about, we know evidentially that some groups of children are less advantaged than others. But I think the picture is rather more complicated in terms of what actually happens in families and the nature of the conversations and the topics and all that stuff. But absolutely, I agree. It's a fundamentally important thing. And you began today with talking about talk in relation to reading and we're back at talk again. I think it's, it is the way almost that, that learning and teaching obviously happen. Let's have some advice from you briefly for early career researchers, if you have to give some. I think I would say that research is a great life. So you should find a topic you really care about and then do the best work you can. So don't be put off by other people. Don't view your career as things you need to achieve, like publishing high impact papers, but view your career as a chance to learn in depth about something that's important and that might benefit society. And then, of course, be sure that you disseminate what you find to the people who can use it best. And a key message that you would like to give um, in relation to research into education, just to finish off our talk today. Well, that's difficult. There are lots of key messages, but I suppose one that's really been important for me and is important for cognitive work is to do comparative research. So don't just look at your own country. If you think about the bigger picture, the main resource of every country is its children. And children are basically the same all over the world. You know, their minds develop in the same way. They like doing the same things. And so we need to study children in different countries with the core topic that we're interested in. So for me, it was cross-language work on learning to read. Because I certainly think that for the cognitive drivers of literacy and dyslexia, then this cross-language work has been transformational regarding our understanding. And I think similar cross-cultural work, particularly in this modern global world, could be really important for other aspects of education research as well. 
Right. Couldn't agree more on how, how wonderful to finish at the point of talking about children as at the heart of education, learning, teaching and research. Usher, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. Once again, many, many congratulations from Bira for your terrific career. And of course, we'll continue to follow it as you go from strength to strength. Thanks again. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Bira podcast. For the latest news on Bira events and activities, visit www.bira.ac.uk. Follow our Twitter account on at Bira News.